The following message is entitled, The Defining Proof of Real Faith, Part 7. This message was given during the evening service on January 22, 2023, at the Eastside Bible Church in Chicago, Illinois, by Pastor John Stevens. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 7. This is part of the Joyfully Suffering Salvation series, series number 3 in 1 Peter 1, verses 6 to 9. And the sermon title continues to be the same, The Defining Proof of Real Faith. We've already looked at the fact that Christians are to be joyful despite trials and suffering. Verse 6, the first verse of this, four verses of this series 3. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 6, In this you greatly rejoice, in this. This refers to everything in verses 3 to 5, our salvation. The Bible does not ask us to rejoice in being tortured. If we're tied to a chair in a Muslim jail and they're beating and torturing us, we don't say, I rejoice in this torture. We're rejoicing in our salvation in the midst of the torture. That's the proven faith issue. In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, it is necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So that the proof, a singular, a supreme proof of your faith, which is verse 6, joy in the midst of suffering for Christ. And then the comparison, the comparison that slams us all, that draws us into an uncomfortable reality. Proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable. The nature of proven faith is that it is more valuable than all the gold and money on this planet. And it is very easy for us to make the statement, yes, proven faith means it's been tested, I have assurance of salvation, I've had joy in the midst of suffering for Christ. That's the proof. And I want that more than all the gold and the money of this planet. And yet, if the comparison stands in verse 7, I think we need to still hark on it. Proven faith under letter B in your note sheet is more precious than perishing gold. Hmm. The comparison for me goes like this. I walk into a large room. On the left is a little table with a placard on it, and on that table with the placard is written proven faith. And on the right are 20 suitcases filled with $100 bills, adding up to $10 million. And the person is standing there in that room and stares at me and says, you can choose one or the other, but not both. Proven faith. $10 million. And oh, by the way, the person says, if $10 million isn't enough to solve all your financial concerns, health concerns, hospital bills, mortgages, rents, your monthly bills, your traveling, your vacation desires, if that's not enough, we'll double and triple it. Which do you choose? Proven faith? Precious gold. can't have both. No more working. 
No more worrying about paying hospital bills, deductibles. Free and easy, no strings. All your future needs met. Don't have to work anymore. Travel the world. Enjoy life. Don't have to worry about raises. Don't need to worry about firing. In fact, with all that money, I can go into my job tomorrow at Skyway and just say I quit. No more lifting 50-pound drums. Or a Mesco that I was talking about this morning. It's that way, that cursed place. Where I've had to innumerable times deliver 400-pound industrial batteries. Get them into my truck. Get them into the place. No more. Piles of money versus proven faith. Someone could say to this, this is an unfair comparison. I didn't make it. The comparison's there. More precious than. That is a comparison. We learned last Sunday night, we focused on the word precious. Infinitely more valuable. None of us wants to testify out loud that we choose all the dough. So we try to squirm out of this, and I know that because I've done it. Well, this is an unfair comparison. Holy Spirit wrote this. Yes, but uh, why can't I have both? It's a comparison, either or. Remember Christ said, you cannot serve God and mammon? Mammon was the Aramaic word for the wealth and the things of this world. You either love the one or hate the other or serve one and or serve the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. It is impossible to do that. It isn't that you choose not to do that. It's that you cannot do it, Christ said. You cannot serve God and mammon. It's impossible. You cannot have proven faith is the ultimate number one thing you want and have all the money and gold that would meet all your needs in this life and want that at the same time. If you have an equal desire for both, you no longer have a desire for proven faith. You've placed the reality of temporary riches ahead of the eternal assurance that you're going to heaven. And the only reason we would do that is we desire more of the suitcases of money than we worry about whether we're truly saved and going to heaven and not hell. Falling forever in darkness, burning alive in an eternal death in hell. No sunshine ever. No screaming voices even to listen of others. You're all alone in darkness, gnashing teeth, falling, falling, falling forever. No time, just like in heaven. No restitution, no repentance, no desire to return to earth and make a second decision to receive Christ, hardened into unbelief forever. Forever and ever and ever. And Peter is saying, you and I had better prove you're truly saved. Proven faith means you are testing to see if your faith is legitimate. And if you choose gold above proven faith, your faith is not legitimate. Because the believer who truly is saved and walking in joy in the midst of suffering wants to know for sure and have assurance that they're going to heaven more than all the money on the planet. 
because money doesn't help me get out of hell. The carnal believer has no use for that. He's not concerned about heaven or hell afterward. Makes a minimalist profession of faith. Makes a minimalist decision that I know that I'm saved because I made a profession. Profession does not prove we're saved. You know that, right? I've taught that repeatedly. It's not profession that proves salvation. It is proven by joy in the midst of suffering. Works, righteous works only produced by the Spirit of God. Now write this down on the first set of blank lines to remind you it is not, the, that it is not faith compared to gold here. It is not faith compared to gold. It is proven faith compared to proven gold. This is precious gold. More precious faith, proven faith. So it's more precious proven faith than precious gold. We could kind of cheese out of this. We'd say, well, okay, well, I don't even know that these suitcases of money are real. Maybe it's counterfeit. It's not. The implication here, as we've studied in verse 7, is the gold is real. Gold can be fool's gold. And faith can be fool's faith. So this is, Peter's making a comparison. He's cornered us. He's put a finger into our chest and he's cornered us. What do you want? And in an impoverished society especially, even more than ours, this is mind-boggling what's being offered here in verse 7. You should have a more greater desire to have your faith proven than in your poverty and destitution as Jewish believers on the run, according to the beginning of chapter 1, having nothing of this world's values, you should want your faith proven more than all the money in the world. The comparison is even more dire and more extreme for the Christians who are impoverished that Peter is writing to. God is slamming us on this. We've lost our way severely, fixating so much on money and wealth. So this is not faith compared to gold, but proven faith compared to proven gold. Proven faith is the valuable commodity compared with proven gold. Far more infinitely valuable. And to show this comparison, I want to share with you just how rare gold is that Peter is making this claim. He has moved us to the highest level of earthly possessions and wealth by mentioning the word gold and before I say to you how valuable gold is in ways you could never imagine, even in our world today, I'm going to let a very wise man say these wise words to all of us. Puritan Thomas Brooks, listen to what he says. Quote, Our God is a safe portion, a secure portion. He is a portion that no one can rob you of. He is a portion that no one can touch or take from you. He not only is our God for the present, oh no, he will be our God forever and ever. A man may be easily deprived of his earthly portion. Many have lost their earthly fortunes by storms at sea, others by force and violence, others by fraud and deceit. But God is a portion that fire cannot burn, floods cannot drown, thieves cannot steal, enemies cannot confiscate, and soldiers cannot plunder. A man may take away my gold, but he cannot take away my God. End quote. 
No carnal or fake believer is ever going to buy that one. No way. I want both. I think it's fair. I want my faith proven. And what's wrong with having a bunch of money and not having to work or pay bills anymore? What's wrong is you can't have both at the same time. This is an either-or comparison. Extreme value of proven faith far more infinitely than all the gold in the world. This is why we should never be satisfied with our spirituality. We come across passages like this that punch us in the face and put us to the ground. Do you really think you're that spiritual, John Stevens, or anyone else listening to this? Do you really think you are? Because when gold is dangled in front of you, it turns your head. Let's realize just how valuable gold is for a few moments only in comparison to proven faith. Fact number one under facts of life about gold. If the gold presently existing above ground in the world was put into one place, it would be a solid cube the size of a doubles tennis court and 45 feet high. That's all. Measure 45 feet high, basically the size of this auditorium, 45 feet high, is all the gold on the planet. Fact number one, there's only 31,000, roughly 31,000 tons of gold presently in existence on the entire planet. Its entire value, a block of gold, the width of this auditorium roughly, up past the ceiling another 20 feet roughly, the value of that block of gold is over 3 trillion U.S. dollars. Fact number one, then, is gold is extremely rare. Fact number one. And very high-priced. Fact number two. All, 50% 50, 50 of all gold mined, you, you, it's, it's a mineral you dig out of the ground, right? Mountains. 50% of all gold mined in world history has been found and mined only since the year I was born, 1960. So our world has been more frenetic and obsessed with finding gold. 50% of that block has just been found in the last 63 years. Fact number two then is the world is chasing gold faster and faster. Fact number two. We want gold. Fact number three. That block of gold, 45 feet high, the width of this auditorium, roughly, accounts for only half of 1% of the value, financial value of the world. Only half of 1%. $3 trillion worth of gold. A block 45 feet high right here. You could set guards around it and chip a little piece off of it every day to buy your McDonald's. That $3 trillion is only half of 1% of all the financial value of the world. We're chasing after something that is very small. Fact number four. Mankind has hung, has, has hung on to gold more than anything. 
Fact number four, mankind has hung on to gold more than anything. Did you know that all of the gold that has been mined over the last 3,000 years, 85% of it is still accounted for? Only 15% of all gold that has ever been mined in world history has been lost. It just is kept and exchanges hands. Maybe you've got a little box somewhere. I've got, Sue and I have some coins that were given to us that are silver coins, a few, just a few, in a box. And they can be put away. Or maybe you've got a little gold watch or bracelet, ladies. It's valuable and a keepsake. Where does it go when you die? Somebody else gets it. And where does it go when they die? Somebody else gets it. Nobody throws gold away. Nobody throws gold away. It just passes hands. It's been passing hands for 3,000 years. 85% of all the gold in world history. You could actually literally have a gold watch that has some of the gold that was on Solomon's temple. How do you like that? Put it on eBay. Gold watch that came from Solomon's temple. King Solomon's mines was churning out gold. The world's largest gold producers in Papua New Guinea, surrounded by tribes in impoverishment, the world's largest gold mine is called the Barrick Company's Pagora Mine in Papua New Guinea. It is operated by cartels that use slave labor to dig the gold out. Gold doesn't disappear. It is so valuable it just changes hands. Nobody wants to get rid of it. Fact number five. Gold will pave the streets of the New Jerusalem. Gold will pave the streets. Revelation 21, turn over there. Verse 10. The Apostle John, and he carried me away, the Spirit carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. And her brilliance was like a very costly stone. Revelation 21, verse 11. As a stone of clear, crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with 12 gates and at the gates 12 angels. Pages are stuck together and were written on them, which were the names of the 12 tribes of the sons of Israel. I guess, I guess Israel's going to be back in the picture, isn't, isn't it? So much for reformers. Now look at verse 21. By the way, if you do the measurements, what we're talking about is a cube. New Jerusalem will be a cube. Each side will be roughly the size of the United States. How many sides to a cube? Six. Like six United States. Look at verse 21. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls. Each one of the gates was a single pearl, and the streets of the city were pure gold like transparent glass. Gold that you can see through. Wow. So this city will be 1,400 miles square and tall, and its wall over 200 feet thick, and gold will be one of the main structural elements of the street. In this massive city. 
the estimate of the amount of gold to do the job would be 100 times more than the 31,000 tons that presently exist in our world today. So fact number five is gold is extremely valuable because it'll be lining the New Jerusalem. The Bible does not say that gold is worthless. Extremely valuable, lining the New Jerusalem. Fact number six. Gold is being siphoned off into private hands. Write that down. Gold is being siphoned off into private hands in modern history. And disappearing. Dr. Antel Fakete is an intellectual heavyweight when it comes to monetary theory and the roles of gold. And he argues currently that almost half of all gold has been siphoned off now into private hands over the last 50 years. That means it's been moving outside of the official monetary system. He points out that in past history, gold was mainly in the possession of sovereigns, nations, and their central banks. The siphoning off has taken place by very wealthy individuals or thousands and thousands of private investors. And here's the ominous and dire gold fact that he mentions. Studying history in relation to gold, Dr. Fichette claims that a similar phenomenon occurred where citizens were hoarding gold themselves in the latter stages of the Roman Empire just before its final collapse. He says this is a major sign of fear of worldwide financial collapse going on or will go on. Our world and humans are desperately afraid of collapse. There's a sense built into humanity that some kind of judgment and disaster is coming worldwide. And they're hoarding gold. Especially in the United States. Did you know that the United States has three times more gold in its central bank than any other country? 8,100 metric tons. Germany is second with 3,000 metric tons. The U.S. then by itself, in private and in central bank hands, the United States has one-fourth of all of the gold that exists on the planet. Just our country. Could that be the Revelation 18? Cry out of the world as it sees Babylon collapsing? Could it be the wealthy nation of the United States? With Russia and China operating larger and larger militaries, they still don't even touch the amount of money the United States spends on military. Three times more than them combined. A central bank filled with gold. The United States citizenry hoarding it like never in world history. And Dr. Fichette says that's a sign of imminent collapse and instability. And our previous president and our current president, simply not the men for the job to lead this nation. Current president doesn't even know how all the top secret documents got into his house. God is laughing at the United States. Is gold valuable? You better believe gold is valuable. Your neighbors are hoarding it. Remember, during World War II in Germany, 
A German mark was seen piled in piles in wheelbarrows during the end of World War II when Germany's military and economy was collapsing. There was no heat, and German citizens were burning their money, their paper money, as fire and fuel to heat their homes. Worthless, but not gold. Fact number seven, there is only one metal that rivals gold's value, and it's platinum. Very difficult to produce and much rarer. So the Bible's right all the way back to 1 Peter 1.7. What do you know? God knows what he's talking about. Forget platinum. The metal of desire is gold. Not the paper in your wallet or purse. Great Greek scholar Cleon Rogers said this, In the ancient world, gold was considered the most expensive and rarest of all metals. It was used in the worship of the gods. It was very prominent in the Temple of Jerusalem, where the one true God was worshipped. Emperors and heroes were known for their lavish use of gold. Under Augustus and Nero, the price of the Roman gold coin, the aureus, was worth 45 denarii. A Roman soldier got 225 denarii a year. And one denarius was considered to be a day's wage. One gold coin then equaled to a Roman soldier a month and a half of wages. One gold coin. One gold coin. Another scholar said this, gold is the monetary standard among many nations of the world and serves to determine the value of currencies. The value of gold, however, is set by world markets. That is, man determines the price of gold. By comparison, faith, proven faith, which is more precious than gold, originates originates not in the mines of the earth, but in heaven. Faith is refined in the crucible of man's suffering. Faith is God's gift to man. God, not man, determines the value of faith. He proves our faith through the heat of suffering. So write it down at the end of Facts of Life about gold. Gold is very rare, yet only proven faith lasts. Gold is very valuable and rare, but only proven faith lasts. It is not fixed for value by man's whims or the markets, and is stable against all man's disasters, as heaven itself is. Rejection then of proven faith, believing one can lose one's faith if tried enough, is rejection of the very quality and security granted by God of proven faith. To reject the idea that your faith can be sure and withstand the test of suffering is to reject the very security granted by God of proven faith. If you're truly saved, you and I are to have joy in the midst of suffering as proof that we are saved. So do we worry more about our money and finances? If you went home tonight by way of comparison and sat down with somebody or alone and you reviewed your life this past week and all the hardships and sufferings that were attached especially to your walk with Christ and as you sat there tonight at home alone or with others 
And you reviewed your suffering and then examined your joy. And if you examined your joy and you found you had consistent upliftment of mind in the midst of severe suffering for the faith of Christ, faith in Christ, thus you sat there with proven faith and an incredible assurance of salvation, would that mean as much to you and I as if we went home and found 20 cases of $100 bills sitting in our living room, would we be whooping and hollering and double-locking the doors for all the money that we now have that we never had before? And would our joy over that gift be greater than sitting home alone with nothing financially and so happy that we have assurance of salvation? I wonder which it would be. And writer said, how many of us have stayed awake at night worrying about money? And how many of us have stayed awake at night worrying about whether our faith is real? Should we not be worrying more about the latter than the former? This is a major mark of standing firm in this epistle. We stand firm on proven faith. Joy when trials increase. Backside of your note sheet. Let us write down our fourth perspective on joy. We've had three of them already. I haven't given you the first three to review, but I will just verbally out loud. Perspective number one from verse six was, joy is encouraged confidence in our precious salvation and protecting Savior. Perspective number two, which is not in your note sheets, is joy is meant to be a partner with persevering trials and suffering. Perspective number three from verse seven. Joy while suffering for Christ is proof that our salvation is real. Joy while suffering for Christ is proof that our salvation is real. And now we come to perspective number four. Fill it in. Joy while suffering for Christ is far more valuable far more valuable than all the gold that has ever existed on this planet. Joy while suffering for Christ is far more valuable than all the gold that has ever existed on this planet. So we suffer. We who are truly saved and walking in the Spirit, walking by the Spirit, we suffer and we have joy. We testify enough outside of the church to experience suffering, and we serve enough in the church to experience suffering. We testify of Christ enough among the lost outside the church to suffer with our lives and our words, and we serve enough sacrificially in the church to face apostates and heretics among our midst in every church who bring suffering our way. And then we have joy in the midst of all of that. And we rest once and for all on proven faith in verse 7. Never to have it tested or worried about again. Wrong. Because now we continue on to point number two. Proven faith will be continuously tested. 
even though tested by fire. God's not done proving our faith to us. It isn't like this. It isn't like I had assurance three years ago. I was suffering greatly and I had joy three years ago. And I remember I marked my calendar three years ago before the plague. I had incredible legitimacy of my faith confirmed to me. I was suffering for Christ continuously three years ago and I had unbelievable joy and I never have to test my faith again. Wrong. Testing is all through our lives. Why not just once and for all? I figured it out three years ago in the illustration, so to speak. I remember, I wrote it down, so I know I'm saved. But then what happens if you backslid from that time three years ago to now? Living for the devil, living for the things of this world. Then the Spirit comes along and strips us of assurance again. Remember, assurance is only for the godly. Let me remind you of that. 1 John 4, verse 17. And John gives us a rare glimpse of what a backslider is in an epistle that's only written about true belief versus apostasy. The only time he delves into the issue of maturity versus backsliding of a true believer is in 1 John 4, verses 17 to 21. A brief window from the Apostle John, an old man now, 1 John 4, 17 to 21, where he talks about assurance. By this, verse 17, love is made mature or perfected with us believers, he's referring to. Because verse 16 says, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. He's talking about true believers. By this, love has matured with us so that we may have assurance in the day of judgment. Confidence is the major word for assurance of salvation. It is assurance defined. It is defined as confidence. Who are the we? Only the believers that have love perfected with us who walk in love. This is a major assurance issue is to continuously walk in unconditional love for others in the church, out of the church. Only the godly have assurance. Only the godly, not all believers. Verse 18, for there's no fear in love. Fear of what? Judgment. Hell. So I'm walking in love when I'm walking by the fruit of the Spirit when I'm walking by proven faith, joy in the midst of suffering, which Peter talks about, here it's love. What does this perfect love or mature love cast out in verse 18? Fear. So you have in churches all around us, we have churches made up of professed believers who are selfish, carnal. They only think of themselves. They don't serve other believers. They come sit, listen, and leave. They gossip, they slander, they attack. They look down on others. They hate others in the church and out of the church. Believers across the land who go into unsaved work environments and think to themselves, it's a worthless endeavor to witness to the lost. God's not saving anyone and never will. And what happens to our love? When the Bible says, and Christ said in Luke 6, and 34, that we're to love our enemies and do good to those who despitefully use us, why would we ever walk away from the lost then? When we're to show Christ-like love. So in verse 18, it is perfected love, mature love, unconditional love shown in every context among employees and employers, neighbors, unsaved, family, friends, in the church. The more we're treated wrongly in the church, the more we show love. Love casts out fear. 
Fear of what? Hell! Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. The minute I start doubting and wondering whether I'm going to hell and I have fear, it shows that I'm not mature, I'm not loving. We don't love because we're treated nice. We love, in verse 19, because he first loved us. That's why we love others. And yet, how many believers have done verse 20? If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, in the heart, obviously, he's a liar. Remember, our affirmations mean nothing to Jesus Christ. What we say we believe is irrelevant. Notice, if someone says, I love God, but in his heart, this is the reality, hates his brother in Christ, he's a liar. When? When he says he loves God. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. It's another comparison. You can't hate fellow believers in a local church and love the Lord Jesus Christ. It's impossible. It's one or the other. So he applies it in verse 21 in this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Which brother? All brothers and sisters in Christ. So we're going to continually be tested. Tested by fire. Fire of what? Apostasy in the church. Hypocrites in the church. Two-faced individuals who claim to be saved. People who gossip and slander against us. And the godly believer who has faith proven by joy in the midst of suffering is one who will continue to serve in the church and love in the church unconditionally and love outside the church in the most horrific of circumstances because this is the calling of a true believer. Back to 1 Peter 1.7 then. So it doesn't end. I got through this trial. I had joy in the midst of suffering. It's done. No more testing. Wrong. Tested by fire is durative in the Greek. It is a state that is in constant existence for the believer. You will be tested by fire. You can't get past the analogy. Gold that is put into fire is not destroyed. It enhances the purity of the gold. The proven faith, true believer, who is put in the fire of suffering, grows more and more and more. This is completely opposite to what most believers say today. Most believers say, this is too much for me. The more I suffer, I deserve to backslide. I have a right to turn from you, Jesus, because you have hit me too hard. That's not what true belief does. Gold does not become destroyed under fire. It's purified. And proven faith, continuously placed under suffering, becomes pure. So we have a switch in analogies going on here. First of all, joy in the midst of suffering proves that I'm truly saved and I cherish it more than gold. Next, suffering doesn't prove faith, it enhances and purifies it. Letter A under point number two then. Peter's obviously making a purposeful play on words. Gold is more valuable the more it is fired. And so is proven faith. 
As fire tests and purifies gold, more and more trials test and purify the true believer if they are responded to with joy. This is the correct way of thinking. If you want to grow, you must be tested by fire more. The mentality of the professed believer that says, I can't take this anymore. More suffering, I will turn from Christ, is the fake believer. A true believer who has had faith proven sees the value of testing by fire. It purifies, it purifies, it purifies. Play on words here, then, is continuing the gold analogy. First value of gold is compared to true faith, and now the fire that gold is put in is compared to fired-up faith. Proven faith is more valuable than the commodity of gold, first part of verse 7. And now, gold which is fired and purified is not as pure, it is not as hot for Christ as the tested-by-fire true believer. But this is not how the mentality is today. See, it's just not only do we think if I had more money, I'd be happier. But now we're being confronted by Peter into this incredible principle that confronts everything that professed believers have in the church today. The more trials, the more suffering, the worse I will be. And Peter confronts that and says, for the proven faith true believer, the more testing by fire, the more gold spiritually is produced. People just don't see that in the church today. The trials are meant to purify and test our faith. Many Christians, maybe most, believe that trials hinder spirituality and hurt it. I would be walking with God if I wasn't suffering so much. That is anti-Christian. This is the theology of suffering. This is so deep in verse 7. It is so countercultural to the church today. God wants us healthy and rich with gold. When I have faith, I have gold. Now countercultural to this one, tested by fire, principle number two. The more that I suffer, I have a right to turn from Christ. Too much suffering. God is unfair. Peter slams that false view of Christianity by saying, uh-uh, true faith is tested by fire. And look what it results in. More praise, more glory, more honor. Incredible. This is counter to everything we see around us. You have to be countercultural in the church. It used to be countercultural in the society. Now we have to be countercultural in the church. Poor Christians are seen as not having faith. Rich Christians are seen as having more faith. More money equals more spirituality in the church today. In the church today, the more you suffer, the more you need drugs. The more you need counseling from a psychiatrist. This isn't right. This shouldn't be happening to me. It's too much for me. In the church, the culture of the church, then suffering is evil. It destroys me and it makes God to be exposed for what he really is. Fundamentally unfair. And Peter's confronting that. Going counter to the wicked nature of the church today among professed believers and says, uh-uh. For the rare true believer whose faith is proven, the more they suffer, the more they come out pure. They shine more for Jesus Christ if they're truly saved. They don't come along and say, no more trials or I'm done with you, Jesus. Our thinking needs to be completely changed about this. We need to sit down and examine not our bank accounts when we go home, but what's going on with our minds that we are so messed up and hate suffering so much. 
Testing is used by God as a good thing to make us more holy. Strips us of all the things of this world. Do you see the ongoing battles in your life as such that it is gold under fire? Or do you see longer and longer trials, much like someone who drinks poison over a long period of time, killing the person ever so slowly? Or do you see trials as health food for the soul? To burn off all the dross and the wickedness that's in there. It's all one's perspective. The rebel and the fake will never see that tested by fire is a good thing. I do not want it to continue. I have had enough. A rare, godly, proven faith believer says, I don't ask for testing. I don't ask for fire. But may it, for the glory of God, bring more and more purity into my life. Father, we've been dealt some serious blows. Difficult teaching because this is not what we've been raised in in the culture of the church today. Suffering is good. Suffering purifies. It is more valuable than all the gold on this planet. Hmm. It's like we're almost aliens trying to be Christians, Martians trying to live incognito on earth. Trying to act and talk like Christians, but completely divorced from the conversion experience, Lord, that you are always sufficient to see us through all suffering. And the more suffering with joy, the more I am purified. It's sad that these basic truths about Christian suffering have been lost, dear Lord, and seem so radically new. I wonder how many wealthy churches I could preach this series on. Go out to Oakbrook Terrace or Naperville, and walk into gold line churches and see the Denali's out in the parking lot and the Porsches and the $500 pinstripe suits of the wealthy corporate execs who have come in to come sit, listen, and leave, get their little Jesus, their little portion, and go back to their blessed life of wealth. I would be run out on a rail. But not me. As I said to someone recently who doesn't attend here, don't shoot the messenger. I'm just repeating what Peter says. Why do people get angry with me when I teach such things? When I'm just telling them, wherever, what you, through Peter, is telling us. Doesn't make any sense. Why would I kick my dog? For the cat that scratches me, dear Lord. But the messenger's in the line of fire. And since we can't kick you, Lord, second best is fulfilling. So to preach in the context of the body of Christ the way it is perverted today, oh, how I know it, brings incredible suffering.
So be it. Suffering with joy for me proves that I'm a believer. And though I don't love testing for testing's sake, if it has a golden, heated up, purifying reality connected to it, I need every tool in my arsenal to war against the sin of the flesh. The battle rages with all of us, Lord, so greatly in our sin natures. We need so much help. And here is tested by fire to purify. Purify. How gracious you are to give us the very thing that we hate. To produce the very righteousness that we do not seek. To give us assurance that we were never looking for. To place value far more than gold that we love. To make us rejoice in the midst of suffering that we think is impossible. And to be lights in a world with unconditional love. When in our hearts we're angry and we resent how we've been treated by others and by you. We're messed up. Have mercy and grace upon our minds, dear Lord. Revive us again. Fill our hearts with your love. May our souls be rekindled from fire above that comes through testing. In Jesus' name, amen.